Okay. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Burns Stanfield, and this this, this might be me getting the, the tears out of the way for tonight. We'll see. Yeah, see. Um, see, Christine, I, 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 <laughs> Christine wanted me to be ready like I am at church. <laughs> You're ready. Good. Thank you. In the front row at church, they have boxes of Kleenexes for me. Uh, I'm ready. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, my name is Burns, and I am a pastor a Presbyterian pastor in South Boston. Um, and when I give a talk, uh, I like to reference scripture, which I will do shortly. I like to incorporate some piece of liturgical music, which we're gonna do a little bit later. And sometimes, sometimes, and if I'm in a certain mood, I'll even incorporate liturgical garb. And friends, that's what this is, okay? And I'll tell you that story, but first I, I wanna say a thank you. Um, obviously, thank you for the incredible honor of getting to speak this week. Thank you to this camp and this council ring. But I'm also just grateful uh, for the presence of JFO this week. Um, I actually, uh, my in, I live in Boston. I've lived there many years. That's, I'm, I grew up in the Midwest, and I'll talk about that later. But um, I've been in Boston many years. But my introduction to camp was back in 1997 uh, when, my, when a dear friend who had been a seminarian intern with me Mike Hegeman, who's here tonight, um, took me out to play piano at a camp in California at Lassen. Okay, so my the my roots in camp really developed in California, and then I was introduced to camp here in my backyard at Winnipesaukee, and so those roots grew. And so the last few years, it's been really wonderful to go to various camps and and see all cross-fertilize, you know, um, and come here and I see people from Lassen and Tahoe and Pacific Redwoods um, and, and Kanda, whom I just met in Virginia at the newest, give, give Virginia a round of applause in the newest camp experience. And so to see you all here is just is outstanding. And I wear this piece of liturgical garb as long as I can in this warmth, right, um, to celebrate JFO and the growing connections all over the country. It's just, it's, it's outstanding. Um, now, here's the story of, of my tie-dye hoodie. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, when I was at Pacific Redwoods in Northern California, uh, a place that's oh so Northern Californian, um, I met Dyer, Dyer Stickney, whom some of you I know know. Um, <laughs> oh man, he is just, he is a force of nature. I love this guy. And he would remind me on a regular basis during the week that life is outstanding. Everybody say that. Outstanding. 
he could be stumbling a little bit late into prayer group, clearly having made his way through some sort of disruption in life. And if you asked him how he was doing, he would still insist, outstanding, and also remind me on a regular basis that I am fabulous, as you are fabulous, all right? So it was the end of camp, and Dyer had learned about me that I was originally from Iowa, that in fact I was going to Iowa to be a part of another event for a week, a Presbyterian event, and he just pictured me as somebody going to Iowa who was from stodgy Boston and who was a Presbyterian pastor, for God's sake, and he has got to go to Iowa and to New England with a tie-dye hoodie. So... For Dyer, I wear this, okay? Because life is outstanding and you look fabulous. All right, now we're ready to go, okay? Um, I, I let him keep playing because he's so beautiful when he plays. It's just so wonderful. Um, I know you know this, I've heard you sing it before. Um, and I, I can feed some words as needed, but I would like you to help me step into this talk by singing somewhere over the rainbow. Everybody. Somewhere. Way up high. There's a land that I heard of. There's a land that I heard of once in a while. Skies are blue. And the dreams that you dare dream really do come true. Someday I'll wish upon a star. They I'll wish upon and wake up where the clouds are. Where troubles melt like a way above the tree. That's where somewhere bluebirds. Birds fly. Please pray with me. Good and gracious God, thank you for the birds that fly, the skies so blue. 
the friends in this place, the friends we will meet, the ties that bind, your great, great love. Guide my words, God, and guide how we hear you tonight. Amen. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. <clears throat> and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. And the light around me become night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light to you. Amen. So one more thank you, and that is to Jim for setting me up so perfectly this morning in his beautiful, beautiful talk. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. He's right. One of those times, probably all those times I was here before, I said something about marveling. For the truth is, any time I'm going to give any kind of series of talks, at some point, I am going to talk about what I consider to be a spiritual discipline and encourage others to go a-marveling. And tonight is no different. I'll begin this series by, by speaking about marveling what has formed that in me, share a couple of stories. I'll do that again. But at the same time, I've had some big changes in my life since the last time I was here, and I think it was six years ago. I've had big changes since I got my tie-dye hoodie, which was three years ago. Two years ago, Two years ago this summer, uh, my father got very, very sick back in Iowa, and he passed in July. Now, he had a full life. He was 89 years old, lots to celebrate. And I will honor him at some point this week because that's important to me, and he was so important in forming me. But also two years ago, during that same summer, when my siblings and I were watching my dad and flying out to Des Moines to spend time with him and to be with him as he passed. Um, I was also coming back here uh, to Boston to spend time with my wife. And as you heard this morning, her name was Lorraine. And her cancer uh, came back in, a, in an especially vicious and altered way uh, in April of 2017. And we wrestled with that prognosis and the treatments and all the rest for those four and a half months. 
until she passed in mid-September 2017. So today, I will indeed, tonight, I will indeed talk about marveling, but I need to nuance it a little bit. And if I were to give a title, the title is really this, Learning to Marvel Anew. Learning all over again, in an altered way, how to marvel. That's where I am in my life now. That's where my uh, faith journey has me. So I'm going to share some of that tonight and indeed in different ways throughout the week. But um, let's get back to just plain old marveling. I'm a Presbyterian pastor, which means at some point I've got to quote John Calvin, all right? And here it is. Calvin said 500 years ago, creation is a theater for God's glory. One of my favorite Calvin quotes. The, the, the creation is a theater for God's glory. I, I think it is another way of saying what the psalmist is pointing to. Where can I flee from your spirit, God? I see you in the high places, the mountains that Jim described. I see you in the low places. I see you here. I sense you there. Your spirit, it's all over the place. There's another theologian I love who is not Presbyterian at all, Russian Orthodox, Alexander Shmeman, and I love to quote him as well. And he writes at great length about how there is a deeper reality to life, what he calls the fourth dimension. And for me, the, these Orthodox and Reformation and Psalmist pieces of poetry are all pointing to something that's the same. It's just that there is a deeper reality. There is um, a shimmer, um, a spirit, God, um, and it's all over. And when... And I'm saying, I'm saying this to, pin, to people at Winnipesaukee. Like, I know I don't have to prove the point too hard, right? You step outside and you behold it. We, we get that. And we can go into other places where it's just as obvious. To the Grand Canyon. Or some magnificent cathedral like Chartres. Or Notre Dame. Before the fire and after the fire. Although I bet if you even go now, you'll sense God's spirit. We can sense God in beautiful places. I believe, though, that when I'm really on my spiritual A-game, I can sense that spirit when I go down the street to Dunkin' Donuts. You know? I can sense that spirit in my church. I can sense that spirit in the hardware store. You know? But I need to have my spirit tuned up to get that which is why camp is so, so helpful. Now, I've quoted the deep theologians. Um, the one that's really fun to quote is my daughter. Um, now, I know I've been telling this story a, a while, but it's my best story for this. You know, I gotta quote Calvin. I gotta be ecumenical and quote Shmeman, but, but the point is really Gracie, all right? Um, who, by the way, turns 21 um, in a couple of weeks, although my story comes from when she was four years old. <laughs> and at this time, um, she loved breakfast. 
and she especially loved waffles. And we had a practice of making waffles from scratch and then freezing the extras. And they come out, you know, so we could microwave them and toast them and they, they would just be awesome. And they certainly were awesome as far as my youngest daughter was concerned. Um, and there was a morning, uh, and like I say, she was around four, um, and uh, we still had the high chair that she could use, although she was basically on the edge of outgrowing it, um, but she could move it, and with a little bit of help from me, the, the waffles came out, they were, they were thawed, they were toasted, she had a plate with a lip on it so she could get the syrup out and make a lake, right? A lake in the plate. Um, and she was fairly independent, like I say, with a little bit of help. So I was enjoying the Boston Globe as she was getting this ready. But at some point, she sat herself on her high chair. She propped up her legs on the table. She had her plate with her torn up waffle and her syrup lake. And she said, Daddy, this is life. The waffle is the theater for God's glory, okay? Um, it is. It's life. It's the shimmer of life. It's the joy of life. It's, it's the beauty of life. And the trick, the discipline, the practice, the mission is to see that, smell that, hear that, notice that. As Yogi Berra said, you observe a lot by watching. <laughs> it's Yogi Berra, so you got to let it soak in, right? <laughs> you observe a lot by watching. Okay. And this is where the marveling comes in. And I heard this phrase from... Um, a wonderful uh, student scholar of preaching, Fred Craddock, who was a master at collecting stories. He grew up, I think, in eastern Tennessee, certainly in Appalachia. But I, I, I think I read, I heard him tell some stories. I think this is one I actually read. But he talked about um, how he has a memory from his childhood of his parents and grandparents talking about the recreational activity known as marveling, or a marvelin, as Jim rightly quoted. Uh, he remembers being on the porch on a Sunday afternoon after church, after Sunday supper, and grandma saying to grandpa, you know, honey, what do you say we go out a marvelin? Which meant taking a wood, taking a walk out in the uh, Tennessee Hills, and seeing what you see, smelling what you smell, hearing what you hear, noticing. Because you can observe a lot by watching and marveling. Now, this is a sweet spot for JFO. Amen? Yeah, because we kind of tune ourselves for this. You get this, we get this. And I have come to think, you know, this whole, the, the, the program we do every day, uh, 
it, it, it tunes us up for that. It, um, you know, you know the phrase, we, to, to become athletes of the spirit. And um, I was thinking of that today because as I was settling into meditation, I will confess what happened for me is what happens to me often in meditation and silence if I'm a little bit rusty, right? I'm a little bit out of practice. I'm trying to focus on my breath, but I'm thinking about the emails I need to write when I get back home. I'm focusing I'm on my breath. I'm thinking about what we need to do to the roof at church so we can switch to solar, you know? And I gotta bring it back, bring it back to focusing on my breath. But I heard something recently that was really, really helpful to me. It was a psychiatrist talking about mindfulness and, and the importance of that, that, you know, that meditation and that focus. And he says, don't get mad at yourself when you have to bring yourself back to, the, to focusing on your breath. That very act, that's like push-ups for mindfulness. Having to, you know, when you wander and then you need to bring it back, it's like, like push-ups. Athletes of the spirit, right? So do that in the different ways we do it every day, all week. We're getting in good shape to pay attention, to marvel, to notice, to see a lot when you watch. Okay. Some years ago, I think it was the first time I was here, um, it was, I, I, I experienced this, and I, you know, we, we were a few days into camp, and the, this was back when my knees allowed me to run regularly, and I took a run early in the morning, uh, and um, on this run, I had to stop. I was, you know, I don't know, on the edge of the lake on a path, I'm probably not pointing in the right direction, but you know, far away in the woods. And I had to stop because I noticed this amazing spider web. It was just startling to me. I just had to stop and look at it because it was so beautiful and so incredible. Again, you know, you sort of tune your senses. You see stuff like that or smell or hear. I don't want to limit it to sight, but you notice, right? And I came up, I was at the podium. Um, I mean, it was, I, that would have been enough, right? Just to notice this, I was happy. I, it was just a beautiful thing. And I was here and I wanted to share that. And I shared that story about what I noticed that morning. And then there's Jack Stebbins over there saying, glory. <laughs> and another one, glory. And it turns out he had taken a walk and seen the very same spider web. Um, I just think that is so cool, right? And I have another story from a different camp on the other coast because we're all united here, right? So I'm gonna bring all the camps together. And this is one where Mike and I were um, with um, the youth. And I, we heard the mission described this morning, the mission activity. We didn't call this one a mission on our last night, our Friday night adventure with the youth. I don't remember what we called it, but we did a similar thing where we walked in the darkness and the lights are up, and it, or not the lights, the stars, God's lights are up, right? Um, and it's beautiful, it's stunning, and, and it's moving too, because we're walking, and then you have somebody with a candlelight uh, reading a lesson or a piece of scripture or a prayer. We go down to the creek, 
and, and, and the kids remember each other's baptism. And I take some water from the creek and put it on their forehead, and it's really beautiful. And then we walk all the way back the road to this little meadow and lie down so you can just see the stars. And when the kids are on their backs looking at the stars, Mike and I read and paraphrase the creation story, you know, in the beginning. And we go through all the days. And we have that refrain where God sees this and says, oh, it is good. It is good. And God created humankind, male and female. God created them and said, oh, this is good. And then we, mid, we did a little bit of midrash, you know, and said, and then God created Burns. And said, Burns is good. And God created Mike said, Mike is good. God created Jeremy and said, Jeremy is good. God created Ethan and said, Ethan is good. Till every child had been named and recognized as good as they're looking at the stars. And after I said the very last name and the very last, she is good, there was a shooting star. And then one of the kids said, Burns, how did you do that? <laughs> I said, I, I have Presbyterian superpowers. You know. <laughs> not, really, not really. See, God's incredible world is ready to put on a show. And by the end of a week of camp, we're ready to notice. Obviously, I didn't make that happen. But what the kids had done was get to a point where they could watch and observe and pay attention. And that's when you see the show. That's when you see the fourth dimension. That's when you sense next to the syrup lake, this is life. Nothing better than reheated waffles. <laughs> so it's a sweet spot for us, this marveling. And that is, you know, I bring that up. I commend that again. I said it before and I'll keep saying it. But two years ago, this became really hard for me. Actually, I would qualify that a little bit because incredibly, that first four and a half months, that time between the diagnosis of cancer coming back and the time Lorraine actually passed, um, as painful as it was, it was also a time um, incredibly, in bittersweet ways, when I just sensed the profundity of life, the preciousness of life. I give Lorraine a lot of the credit, and I will talk about this in a few days at, at greater length, but she was heroic for me in how she just sensed the gift of 
of every moment, the gift of every gesture of kindness that came her way, no matter how awkward it was, the gift of every conversation with our kids and others. So I sensed life. I, I sensed that dimension still in that very, very painful, bittersweet time. But then she passed. And after uh, a rush, you know, outpouring of support and love, my story's not atypical. You know, there's so many people helping you and, and you're doing one event and you're doing another event and, and the love that comes, um, you know, there's that rush that you kind of float on. But then a week or two later, things start to settle. And that's hard. It's hard. And a, a big piece of my experience for several months, and, to some, and every once in a while now, is this fog that settled in. And there's a lot of dimensions to grief. Our church has been doing some work on creating a trauma healing ministry. So at the time, I was beginning to read about trauma. At the same time, I was dealing with my own very intense grief. And um, it, it was helpful. Um, I learned about my lizard brain, right? Do people know about this? Like this oldest, you know, and oldest part of your brain that affects your breathing and your heart rate and... I would walk into the hospital where she was treated and for some reason my heart was thumping and I was, I was short of breath and I learned that was my lizard brain, right? Um, these kind of triggery things. So that, that was definitely a part of that time. But the other thing that I want to bring attention to be, because it has so much to do with marveling and just walking through life was this fog that settled in, and it made it so hard to see beauty. And that was painful for me, because I've fancied myself kind of good at being creative, and making music, and being resourceful, and seeing beauty in unusual places. But just settled in. Listen again to the song that you sang for tonight's liturgy. Somewhere over the rainbow, skies are blue. Somewhere. And someday, I'm going to wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are behind me. Where troubles melt. Somewhere. Someday. But for now... Birds fly over the rainbow. Why then, oh why can't I? That's how it felt. And I trusted that there were beautiful blue skies, absolutely. We talked about faith today in our prayer groups. And I was thinking of this, I was, that was my faith that that beauty was there, even though right now the clouds make it hard to see and sense. So, that's what it felt like. That was my part, that part of the journey. And 
Um, the wisdom, I mean, I can, I probably could find some quotes from Calvin and Shmeiman for this too, but the advice I really want to share comes from Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, a campfire thing. Um, did you ever do this? You know, where you go, uh, we're going on a bear hunt. Did you know that? Where I go, hold that. We're going on a bear hunt. Gonna catch a big one. Got my binoculars. We're not scared. Uh oh. Grass. Tall, wavy grass. Can't go over it. Can't go under it. Can't go around it. Better go through it. Swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy, swish. You know this wonderful gem? And then you hit a river, right? And then you hit mud, thick, oozy mud. And then a hurly-whirly snowstorm. And each time, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. You can't go around it. You gotta go. You gotta go. That is my profound advice for anybody going through grief. Going through a birthday. Going through a concert that Lorraine would always sing with us. Going through an anniversary. Going through the day she got this diagnosis or that diagnosis. Going through the day that we were gonna take a trip, one last trip to Amsterdam with the kids, but we had to cancel it. Going through the time you changed that trip to Europe to a trip to Sturbridge, but you had to cancel it. Going through the stay vacation, staycation in the hospital ward. You remember that stuff. And it may be a hard day, a cloudy day, but you can't go over it. You can't go around it. You got to go through it. But there was a moment in February, five months later, when I uh, was out visiting my sister in Los Angeles, just, you know, a week, some time away. And um, I forget the name of the hill that she lived on, but it, you know, one of, one of the hills, and they're all over the place in Los Angeles. And I was up there, and I would just take walks. I would just take walks. Um, and there was a day um, when I saw a cactus. And whatever it was, the way the sun hit the cactus that day, uh, my own frame of mind, some slight retuning of the pitchfork in my soul, um, something, the grace of God. Just the blooming grace of God. And I looked at the cactus and I found it beautiful. Nothing fancier than that. I just saw something and it was beautiful. And I wept 
because I could see beauty for a moment. I not only wept, I took out my phone and I took a picture and sent it to my kids because I wanted them to know what I'd seen. And days like that perk up more often. And that's why I call it learning to marvel anew. Now, I could have said this and did say this a year ago. I would add something else to that now. Because I'm now, I mean, going on two years, coming into a different phase. I actually, let I me, mean, before I, I completely leave the fog, Carol and I were having a, a conversation about the fog um, over dinner just today. And, and she rightly encouraged me and encourages me to think of the fog as a gift from God. Because to really feel might be too much. I'm, I'm going to chew on that this week. And I encourage you to do likewise if you want. So the second year, there's less of a fog and I'm feeling more, maybe, when I can handle feeling more. And that, that fits because what I want to say now is that there is this sensation of feeling um, a, a deeper sadness and beauty and even joy wrapped together, which is the hardest thing in the world to describe, and I'm not there yet. I, I, I will give you another theologian, okay? Um, actually, a couple, one who's a fancy theologian and one who's more profound. But the, the fancy one is Paul Ricoeur, um, who, who is just kind of talking about life and, and, and our awareness and our consciousness and so forth. And he writes about a first, what he calls a first naivete, which is basically the way we understand the world, you know, at a certain point, whatever that is. And then very often we go through some kind of disruption, you know, falling, failing, sickness, whatever it is, new information, going to college, you know, whatever it is, some kind of disruption. And then we have to come out of that valley into what he insightfully calls a second naivete. But here's the deal you incorporate. I mean, if you make it out of the valley, and some people don't emotionally, some people don't. That's real. But you make it out, and it's a new kind of understanding. So, for example, many people may be in, a, in, in this first place and, and, and imagine if I'm good good things happen to me. God makes good things happen to good people. God makes bad things happen to bad people. It's what a friend of mine, Greg Mobley, who's a, a Hebrew Bible scholar, calls Iron Age theology. You know, that's kind of the way religions dictated things. But the amazing thing is lots of people still believe that. We're, I don't know how many centuries beyond the Iron Age, but as a pastor, I bump into that all the time. I am sick. What did I do wrong to deserve this? All right? But anyway, with Ricoeur's example, um, there's an understanding that bad things only happen to bad people, and then lo and behold, a beloved aunt gets really sick. And that kind of throws your first naivete into the mixer. 
And the important thing is, can you come out with a, with a new understanding that can hold all of that, okay? That's how Ricoeur describes it. Uh, Richard Rohr, and I suspect some people here re read Richard Rohr, and he talks about falling upward. You can have a falling, you have a failing, um, and we can talk longer about that book if anybody wants to. Um, but in, you know, into that, and then he comes into this period that he calls a bright sadness. That resonates a little bit more with me. I, I, I think there's truth to that. The third person I want to quote, though, is not a theologian, technically speaking. This is the friend of a, well, he's become my friend. He's, he's the son of a woman in, in Lorraine's book club, which has now become my book club. Lorraine was in a book club. They were all women that went to medical residency together um, and stayed together as a book club through wedding announcements, baby showers, bar mitzvahs, blah, 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 everything, and now through two deaths. Lorraine was the first and another woman named Judy, uh, who was a doctor at Tufts Medical Center, died in a tragic hiking accident up in New Hampshire um, this past Christmas. Um, so our I, I am now an honorary member of this book club, um, as is Judy's husband. Um, and um, anyway, I've gotten to know these friends in a, in a deeper way, as you might imagine. But... Um, Carol and Boris have a son named Sidney, who, I, and I don't know the name of his condition. He was born with it. He's had significant um, health issues and, he, and uh, can hear a little bit with the help of an implant. And so he communicates with sign language and with a very expressive face. Um, and a somewhat limited vocabulary because of the other conditions of, of this, of his, his uh, condition, you know, of his illness. Um, but he has land, he has this amazing heart and he has landed on an expression that's very important to him and now very important to the book club, which is happy, sad, both. The book club gets together and it's good to be together, but we miss Judy and we miss Lorraine. So Sydney calls this gathering with a big smile, but sometimes with tears. This is happy, sad, both, okay? Second naivete, bright sadness. The place I'm working on getting to, okay? Like if you had a map, I'm sorta here, sorta here, but getting there and sensing God's presence throughout. And I have um, a very mundane story to tell, but I've decided it's a parable. Okay. I, um, my bathroom shower sometimes clogs up. Okay. It's done this for many years. And within the division of labor in our household, it was Lorraine that would do the magic to fix that. There were other things I did, just for the record. <laughs> but she mastered that one. And I, like with so many things that I regret now, did not pay attention enough. Um, but I know she had some sort of device, some sort of rotor-rooter device, and she would 
do this device and the water would stop backing up. It's marvelous, outstanding, right? And several months after Lorraine died, um, it was starting to clog up again. And you had, I deny it for a while, like I denied many things and kind of avoided it, but it was, it was becoming an issue. Like it was just too much standing water. And I thought, I know we have, I know we have some kind of rotor rooter device. And I, so I went down to the basement and looked and I mean, I looked all over. I just could not find what in my mind was the rotor rooter device. And uh, I said, well, I've got to go to Home Depot one of these days and find one of these things and buy one and figure out how to use it. And it just wasn't happening. I looked in the, ba I did several trips to the basement and I couldn't find it. And then one day, this again is within the first year of grief, um, one day, Magically, it, it drained. You know, it just like, there was no standing water. It was done, it was a miracle. <laughs> and you know, probably something got dislodged, but I like to think that Lorraine was there with the heavenly host, you know, talking to her new buddies, saying, I know this is probably against the rules, but don't you think we can go help Burns out a little bit with this? You know, that's the way I picture it. Um, anyway, it's not an issue for several more months until, um, you know, another six, seven, eight months later, it's starting to do it again. This would be last spring or so. Yeah, and it's starting, it's starting to back up. I'm like, oh, no. And I keep, okay, come on, Lorraine. Do it again. Come on. Jesus, please, you know, somebody, come on, help me with this drain. I said, okay, all right, this is up to me. This is up to me. And, um, you know, and I'm starting to look as I get ready to buy one. And I say, well, why don't I, maybe I missed it before. And I go down back to the basement and I see this thing, which I realize, wait a minute, maybe that's the Roto-Rooter device. Like I did not have eyes to see beyond the cloud before. I just didn't, I just, I didn't have the wherewithal. I didn't have the mental capacity. Like my grief counselor kept telling me, grief is like having a brain injury, you know? And it is a brain injury. And anyway, but I took this thing and, and this must have been April, like on our way to Easter, I think. And I, and I did it. You, you should be clapping for me, yes. <laughs> it was the highlight of my week, I'm telling you. Um, and, and I came out of that thinking, you know, I, I can do this life thing, right? <laughs> I can do this. And in fact, around that time, it wasn't right after, which would make a great story, but around that same time, it was around a certain anniversary, um, I had a dream about Lorraine. And this was a time when I wanted to have more and more dreams. You know, I just wanted to see her more and more, but she wasn't having that. And, um, but on this, this, in this dream, she was on a riverbank, you know, and I could see her and she smiled at me and she just gave me a wink, you know, like what I interpreted in my dream, her saying, Burns, you got this. 
kind of a tough love thing or, you know, teaching your child to ride a bicycle or something, you know. Getting back up. Learning to stand again. Figuring out how to unclog the drain. Maybe even learning how to marvel anew. This morning, uh, Jim reminded me of something that I had forgotten. Um, I, I know I have talked about going from one naivete to another and going through the valley. I know I've had people sing Red River Valley. I had totally forgotten that the first time I did that, Lorraine sang it. So I, as we end tonight, I ask you to indulge me because I'm, with God's help and practice and patience and loved ones, in the process of going to a new place out of the valley. So if you would indulge me, would you please sing that chorus? Come and sit by my side if you love me. Do not hasten, bid me adieu. Just remember the rest. 